here respected. Expert level information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Cream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your office. Coolest, coolest show you know the hip hop chorus. Well, let's get started. You know, Shalada, I'm excited for this interview for so many different reasons. One, I just got to say that this must be like the culmination with the coolest show because all we talk about is energy justice, climate justice, and equity. So this has got to be like this exciting to like just bring all this good news forward today. (laughs) Yes. I mean, it's a culmination of so many things for so many of us, right? We've all been working toward this moment when climate justice becomes a part of the national conversation. And so I'm excited. Well, we are excited to have you. Uh, Let me first let folks know that Shalanda H. Baker is the Deputy Director for Energy Justice in the Office of Economic Impact and Diversity at the U.S. Department of Energy. Prior to her appointment, she was a professor of law public policy and urban affairs at Northeastern University. She has spent over a decade conducting research on the equity dimensions of the global transition away from fossil fuel energy to cleaner energy resources. She's the author of a dozen articles, book chapters, and essays on renewable energy law, energy justice, and energy policy. And she is the the co-founder and co-director Uh, I guess, prior now to her coming to Deputy Director at the Institute for Energy Justice. But we are so happy to have her here. Uh, She really is the, uh, uh, just the, just the culmination of just what we hope for. This is why elections matter. Because when when we are thinking about uh, not just, sometimes in our movement, we get caught up on just the mayor or the governor or the president. But honestly, it is in these departments, um, people who are in these positions, uh, folks who have been tooling with us, even though I know she was tooling in Hawaii, which is quite nice uh, (laughs) before. uh, But she has been tooling with us um, both in the streets and in the suite. Shalanda, we are so happy. I mean, to say congratulations. And we are so happy and excited for you to be the Deputy Director for Energy Justice in the Office of Economic Impact Diversity at the U.S. Department of Energy. Thank you so much, Reverend. I'm so excited to be here today with you and so honored to really serve in this new role. Well, let's get right to it. For folks who don't know you, who is Shalonda Baker? Mm. That is a, that's a hard question. You know, Mm. I think a lot of people look at my CV, look at where I've been and they say, oh my gosh, how did you fit all of that into one life? Um, You know, I think I identify as a black woman. I'm a queer woman. And um, most recently people have started to call me an activist and I never thought of myself as that. Uh, I'm a lawyer and I have just been concerned with issues of inequity in our energy system. And that has caused me to be really vocal about that and write about it and and start organizations that are committed to fighting uh, that fight. And so I guess in some ways I I can kind of put that label on uh, as activists, but 
Um, but I'm also a scholar and, um, you know, I really want to understand systems and how they operate against the most marginalized people in our society. So I'm all of those things. I'm also an avid outdoor enthusiast. I care about the planet. Um, you know, I'm a deeply spiritual person and feel connected to this earth, feel connected to the ancestors and all those who did so much to pave the way for me, um, to be here. So I'm a lot of things. Um, but right now I'm, I'm in this new role and, you know, I'm a, I'm a civil servant. So, uh, that's, that's where I am today. And, 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 and I know it hasn't been a long time, but, uh, uh, are you, are you excited about that process and that transition where you are now? I am. I mean, I you can know, see it too. I can just, it's it is bubbly. It's like, it's like, it's like a new day. It's like, I'm, I'm looking for a Diana Ross and Michael Jackson. It's a new day in the whiz to, to cut on through. <laughs> I love it. Yes, I'm rocking my fro today, so you know, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. Um, you know, I you know I interviewed for this position. I was approached to to join the administration, and as you mentioned in the intro, I mean, I spent a decade writing about issues of energy justice, really fighting um, for a more just energy system. And I said to the folks who um, who invited me to be a part of this administration, I said, are, "Are you sure? You know who I am, right? You know what I've been doing." And, and they said, yes, we, we want you because of that. And so for me to be embraced and to feel like I can bring the whole of me into this role is really, um, again, such a privilege. And I'm not alone. That's the great thing. I'm alongside other people who have similar backgrounds who've been fighting for justice. And now we have, you know, executive orders that are talking about racial inequality and racial justice and talking about climate justice. And we are here to execute on that. And, and we have you know, the movement at our back. Um, I can't tell you how many emails I received when this was announced where activists, people who I've been working with said, we have your back, we have your back, we have your back. And it was so moving to receive that because, you know, they know that it's not easy. Uh, You know, the work ahead is daunting, but um, I know that they have my support. I have their support and and they're really with me in this work. No, that's beautiful. Um, actually, speak to our young people for in a second here. Mm. Um, and I think it's important because, as you know, we have these many movements that are coming together um, from racial justice and climate justice and energy justice, and they're all the same. They're, they're not inter- they, they are literally one and the same. And we have a lot of young people who are activists, who are out there in the streets, who are in who sometimes feel like they can't be a civil servant. I think that's one of the things for our, because we know this is this is an amazing, beautiful country. But one of the things about that is when people don't feel they can be a part of it. So talk about it as an academic, as a black woman, mm-hmm. as a black, as a black queer woman, all those powerful, beautiful identities that some people may 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 think can exclude them sometimes from democracy and serving their country. Speak to those young people mm-hmm. right now. Oh my gosh, that is such a beautiful question. Um, and it's going to take me a minute to answer. I hope you'll bear, bear with me for nah. a little bit. So, you know, my journey to this place really began um, in the late 90s. I, I was raised by a single mother in Austin, Texas. Um, and I had the opportunity to, to go to the Air Force Academy and serve my country. So I, I spent four years at the academy getting my education. 
um, I graduated and I was commissioned as a lieutenant in the Air Force, and I got the opportunity to serve this country. Um, but at the same time, I was coming out. I was figuring out who I was, and I was serving under the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy, mm. which meant I had to hide who I was. So that was late 90s, early 2000s, during the height of the Don't Ask, Don't Tell um, policy, where you know there were LGBT service members who were serving their country but mm-hmm. had to, again, live these double lives. And so I um, found myself in an abusive relationship with someone who knew that I couldn't, you know, come out, couldn't seek help. And so um, I was in that relationship, again, living this double life, uh, a young person, 22, 23 years old. And eventually I did leave that relationship. I um, came out to the military and said, you know, I'm willing to serve, but I'm not willing to serve in silence and Mm. to endanger my life. And so that really started my own journey um, uh, with respect to social justice. I got, I got woke, you know, I, I became conscious. I, I started reading, I started understanding all the different ways in which we have structural inequality in the law. And um, it was a big awakening for me. And again, that was back in the late nineties, early two thousands. And since then, for the last 20 years, I've committed myself to working um, on issues of social injustice and structural inequality. And it wasn't until now that I have really, um, that, that I felt that I was really a part of um, something that was more mainstream. So it took me a while to kind of fight. For a long time, I was marginalized. For a long time, um, particularly in the climate space, um, it was unpopular to talk about justice because mm. that was seen as something that would slow down um, our progress on climate. But I knew that if we left justice out of the conversation, we would leave behind so many communities that are on the front lines of climate change. And so for the young people out there, I would say, know who you are, stay true to that, and just continue to speak you know, that truth. Keep speaking that truth, and eventually you'll get your moment. Um, you know, as, as uh, Vice President Harris said, you know, I'm the first, but I don't want to be the last. I mean, I'm the first person ever to hold this role as a deputy director for energy justice, but I don't want to be the last. And so I'm hoping that I'm making it easier for the young people behind me to tell the truth and to, to, to keep fighting. Um, But they're going to have to keep fighting and and make sure that they are grounded um, in, in their principles and their beliefs. I love it. I love it. That's a, (laughs) that's amazing. Well, let's get down some of these terms, because I know one of the things okay. with, with your new role, um, I know you want to ensure that people from all walks of life understand literally the energy process. And that's one of the most amazing things that hopefully you can do and the Department of Energy can do um, moving forward. So let's break down. What is what is energy poverty? Let's start there. Sure. Yeah, energy poverty is really having a a lack of access to energy. Um, There are people who, when we think about energy poverty, we usually think about sub-Saharan Africa and places where there's just no electricity, no no electrical infrastructure. Um, And that is true, right? People in certain regions, Asia and sub-Saharan Africa, definitely um, what we consider energy poor and people who um, are experiencing energy poverty. But energy poverty and energy insecurity are things that people all over this country are experiencing. And that is, you know, lack of access um, to energy because of the cost um, and because of, well, also because of the lack of um, infrastructure. 
so there are tribal nations here in this country where people don't have electricity, which is mind blowing, mm. um, where people are, are sort of making, making it work in terms of, you know, um, being able to live their day to day lives. So energy poverty is a lack of access to reliable energy and energy insecurity really comes from um, the amount of money that people are paying for electricity. So it means that they're sometimes not able to pay their bills and they're just energy insecure. And, you know, from my own experience, I grew up in a household that was energy insecure, which meant that my mom, you know, was constantly shuffling bills to try to, you know, pay she would say, pay Peter to, or rob Peter to pay Paul, right? Mm-hmm. And it was, um, you know, what can we pay Gotta now? Gotta find Peter first, though. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Well, she was good at finding, finding Peter, though. So, you know, there were moments where we didn't have um, what we needed to have a secure household that was warm. You know, we were wearing lots of layers. You know, we'd say, we're cold. She's like, put on some clothes, you know. So, you know, that's energy insecurity, and that's something that is common in this country. No, and I know that. I'm originally from Louisiana, and I know when you mm-hmm. say that, that means when it, when it's cold, that means they would, you know, they would open the oven up. They would be like, they would, they would, they would that's be it. like, oh, they would open that oven up, or they'd be, it's, it's hot. Open that refrigerator up for a second, but don't, 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 don't do it too long. They would, that's, that's the kind of <laughs> Exactly. I know exactly what you're talking about. The oven. I mean, I remember those days. That is so dangerous, right? No, that, that actually so looking dangerous. back on it, that would be like we'd be little kids standing by the standing by the oven. That would be <laughs> oh man. But you know, as I think about that with these kids today and and mm-hmm. insecurity, with kids now being home with Zoom and not going to school, mm-hmm. how I guess the, is that part of the process where you have Folks who are either in the Appalachian Mountains to down in Port Arthur, Texas, who are literally now having more of the energy bills beyond them. Rev, I mean, you're hitting the nail on the head. This is that intersection between COVID and this moment and the inequality that is baked into the energy system. So we know that back in March last year, a year ago, we had states you know, decide that they would suspend people from getting shut off on their utilities. So it wasn't a widespread adoption. I think there are about 36 jurisdictions around the country that Mm -hmm. decided to say, we're no longer going to disconnect people from their utilities because we know that people are now in their homes. You know, normally shut off happen, right? People get shut off all the time and they get cut on and they have to pay fees to get back on. And those who tend to get shut off are the lowest income among us. We also know that people of color in this country are, are more likely to experience energy insecurity. That's, that's hard data from the agency I, I serve in, the, um, the Department of Energy. And so um, back in May when this pandemic started, states really moved to stabilize homes because they knew people were spending more time in their homes. Um, but those, um, they were called moratoria on utility shutoffs. Those moratoria began to expire in the summer and in the fall. And many home, many people are, are still vulnerable to shutoffs, and and many people did get shut off. And in fact, a study came out a couple months ago from Duke University and the National Bureau of Economic Research that said that had there been a federal policy preventing utility shutoffs and disconnections, we would have averted fifteen percent, fifteen percent of COVID deaths. That wow. that should be mind blowing, right? And so utility disconnections um, are impacting people not only in terms of 
doing homework, those sorts of things, just, you know, living in their homes during this pandemic, but they're, they're affecting people's lives. People are dying. And so this is real. And this is all about the energy system. No, that, that is real. We know we here, uh, we keep it real. We keep it, we keep it 100%. And as you're talking, you know, for communities of color, particularly BIPOC communities, you know, yeah. I don't know if see other communities might not understand this. I'm gonna break it down for them. But what what you're saying here, Shalanda, is that the envelope starts off as white. That's the bill. Then yeah. the envelope goes to yellow, and that's when they begin to threaten you. And they be like, "Okay, yeah. you know, you got a bill due. If you don't pay it, and then it goes to pink. And when the pink one comes, that's the shut off one." And that's terrifying. And that's when they, you know that pink one, you're like, oh my goodness. And so what you're saying is that these pink ones are now going to be hitting our country. And people are going to not be dealing not only with COVID and the stress, but the anxiety of the cutoffs. That's horrifying. It's horrifying. And we know that this pandemic has disproportionately impacted uh, people of color in the workforce. And so, you know, folks are experiencing unemployment or uh, employment insecurity in the service sector, right? Those jobs that require face-to-face. And so many people have, are getting those pink envelopes and, and red envelopes um, because they've not been able to pay their bills. And we're looking at, you know, two, $3,000 in back payments mm. that are owed. And, and we know that this latest recovery <clears throat> bill, um, this legislation that was just signed into law yesterday, uh, is going to offer some relief in terms of, um, you know, bill assistance. But there's still a deeper structural problem, which mm-hmm. is that communities of color and low-income communities are still just paying too much to meet their energy needs. They have a higher energy burden. Um, statistics show that wealthier households, uh, middle and high-income households, are paying 2% of overall income to meet energy needs, whereas um, the lower income households are paying 15 up to 20. I've heard ridiculous statistics of 25% wow. um, of overall income just to keep the lights on, keep the house warm. And, and you know, when you're paying that much, you're doing what my mom did. You're, you're keeping the heat really low. You're, you know, minimizing use. So even though these, these households are also using less, they're still paying more. Putting so the, putting that's the a towel by the problem. putting the towel by the front door and putting plastic on the you windows, know it. all all of that. Exactly, right? Exactly. And so, and and I mean, the thing that that people often don't talk about in conjunction with energy burden is that these are the same communities that are more likely to live in, in the shadows of fossil fuel generation. Mm. So they're paying more of overall income to subsidize a system that is effectively killing them and shortening their lives. So, I mean, again, this is the energy system, things that people don't think about because it's invisible. Um, you know, we see the poles and wires, but there's a structure that is operating that was created by law and created by policy choices. And what I've argued in my work is that these are choices. That means we can make other choices. And so, you know, I'm excited um, to begin to help craft a system that is more just. No, we're excited for that as well. Just, <laughs> thought, just, just a thought about that, you were speaking, because we know that 68% of people of color, particularly black people, live near, live within 30 miles of a coal-fired power plant. Um, and right. so what you're saying is that literally they're paying more 
for the system of pollution that is also giving them asthma and cancer and emphysema and stillborn deaths and all of that. So literally they're paying for their genocide. Exactly. Exactly. Hmm. Yeah, that is a, a beautiful and powerful way to frame it. What is energy justice? Yeah, so energy justice is essentially the uh, equitable distribution of <clears throat> the benefits and burdens of our energy system. So, uh, you know, energy injustice, we know what that looks like. It's what you just described. So disproportionate burdens being placed on certain communities. Energy justice requires that there is equity and that we have um, a fair sharing of the burdens of, of keeping our, our lights on and keeping our energy system afloat. Um, it's also about centering the voices and concerns and hopes and dreams of those who have been the most marginalized by this mm. energy system. So it's saying that communities of color who've been so left behind, environmental justice communities, disadvantaged communities, should have a say in helping to create our new system. So, you know, they've been left behind in terms of clean energy and roof, rooftop solar access. They've been left behind in terms of weatherization. I mean, there are many programs that target those communities, but there's still a long way to go. And so we should be thinking about how to make sure that those communities are really brought up to the same level as other communities in terms of the benefits um, and that they're no longer burdened um, by the location. I mean, you, you cited that great statistic and my sister Jackie Patterson at the NAACP has done some amazing work um, around, you know, uh, environmental injustice and justice. And so um, we need to make sure that in this clean energy transition, we're not going to those same communities to heavily burden them with clean energy infrastructure. We've got to make sure that it's all equitable and that people still have green space and still are able to live good lives in this new um, energy moment. How do you bring it together? I know your background, you are, you have, uh, you have your legal background, your academic background, your science background. So obviously you're, you're bringing in uh, obviously the, 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 the academy, you're bringing in now the legislation and the governing, all these different pieces. How do you do that to ensure you can, to break down the silos to get to that keyword, which is in your your title, justice. Mm. Oh, I love that question. I love the question because <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? Like it's just I, I have been on a path and and doing what my heart tells me to do and doing what, where my going where my intuition tells me to go. Um, you know, I've seen a problem and said that's that's not right. I want to be a part of solution, the solution and solving it. Um, and, you know, because of that, you know, because of my experiences with the military, I decided to become a lawyer. I thought I was going to be a civil rights lawyer. And so I went to law school, did that, um, and then came out and became a, came out of law school and became a project finance lawyer, which is a, a lawyer that helps to build energy projects. I don't know how that happened. I think I, I did that because I saw the um, economic development as a pathway for social justice. And so I wanted to understand how economic development took place. So I immersed myself in the world of economic development as a project finance lawyer. And then I started to realize, oh my gosh, there's inequality in the way we do development. Mm. And so we need to change that. And so I was picking up skills and I didn't know at the moment that I was preparing for this, this time, this day, this mm, come opportunity. Come on now, come on now. But I was, 
I was picking up those tools, right? And then I left legal practice and, you know, said, you know, I'm only helping people get richer because I was working at a corporate law firm. I moved to Mexico. Don't know why I did that. I mean, I wanted to work with people who were at the very margins of society, who were being battled with coal fire development or coal, coal mining, gas, oil, extractive industries. And I met indigenous people who were fighting against clean energy. I don't, I mean, how did I end up there? I have no idea. But what they taught me in this place that I ended up, which was called Oaxaca in Mexico, what they taught me was that clean energy development could replicate the inequality of the fossil fuel system. And mm. So that began me on this journey of being a climate justice expert and energy justice scholar and, um, you know, and so on and so forth. So I have no idea sort of why I, I, I made the choices I made. I mean, other than I was following my heart, I wanted to do good. And now in this role, I'm able to talk to, you know, the folks in the movement with whom I have these deep relationships and connections, um, other academics who've been doing this work because that is the, the work that I did, um, and academics across disciplines because I've run interdisciplinary teams. And, you know, I'm, I'm with other government servants. And so I'm able to, to be in conversations with them. So all along the way, I was picking up tools that prepared me for this moment. And I can only, in some ways, I know you're a reverend, so I can only say that it was divinely, you know, inspired, right? Like someone had a plan. There was a plan out there and I was following that plan, but I didn't know that that was what, what was in store for me. So I feel very fortunate that I listened, that I followed that intuition. And I said, this is what I need to be doing, not knowing what the big picture, uh, what the, how the big picture would unfold. No, no, no. Listen, I'm from, I'm from down South as, as you know. And so uh, the old folks would say, you know, what was meant for evil, God will turn to good. And so that all those all those things that was actually used to harm us are the exact same <laughs> things that now is our is our is our armor and our weapons. So now nah, you you, you <laughs> are you are the you are you are the epitome. So no no you you are right where you are supposed to be. Um, that's <laughs> without a doubt, uh, and it is it is divinely ordered. Every every single good step and bad step. Got you to you know? right where you are. So that's that's the amazing part about that. Mm. Um, Shalani, you mentioned that was you. very no, no, most definitely. So you mentioned that was very important. I want to make sure I, I heard it. I want to make sure I come back to it. You said that there was indigenous members who were not only protesting fossil fuels but also clean energy. Um, right, and that I think links back to energy poverty. But you break that down. How does that happen? Sure. So this place called Oaxaca, so Oaxaca is a state in Mexico. It is the second poorest state in Mexico, and it's in the southwest corner of, this, of the country. Um, it's next to Guerrero, which is an interesting and fascinating place. For anybody who wants to go to Mexico, I, imagine, I, I encourage you to travel in this region. So Guerrero is interesting because it's um, it's a place where there are a lot of Afro-Mexicanos. Uh, so like mm. people who were um, escaped enslaved people form these communities. And I have some interesting stories about traveling deep into the mountains there where I, I got off a bus, like a little bitty bus and looked out and people looked at me and they're like, who are you? <laughs> you know? So but that's not the story. So the state of Guerrero is interesting. And then Oaxaca is next to it. And then next to Oaxaca on the other side is Chiapas. And a lot of people know about Chiapas as a place of, you know, social justice and movement building. 
Um, but Oaxaca is sandwiched between the um, Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. And there's a sort of narrow belt of land called the Isthmus of Tehuantepec, which mm. is where the wind wind blows nearly constantly. And it actually has some of the highest um, you know, wind power in the world. And that's according to maps that were put together by the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, which is also part of the Department of Energy. So um, these maps showed that Oaxaca was extraordinarily windy. And in the early 2000s, um, the, the country and with, with assistance from the World Bank decided that they would begin to build wind projects there. And so the only problem is the people who lived there were indigenous and they relied on the land to support um, a subsistence way of life. So they were farmers, they were um, they're fishermen, and this is a, an area of extraordinary diversity. People there um, are from different indigenous groups, so they're not necessarily connected genealogically, but they're um, you know connected to the land in, in many ways. And um, these people were essentially... They didn't speak Spanish, but they were signing contracts in Spanish, essentially signing away their rights to their land. And wow. these wind uh, wind uh, project developers were coming in and, you know, kind of swindling neighbors, dividing them up. Um, and there were those who had been involved in um, various movements to realize that this was a similar kind of extractive form of development that was uh, going to harm the people in this region. So they started to organize and they saw that there was kind of a big picture um, uh, thing that was unfolding. And that is, this was just the beginning. So again, it started in the 2000s and between around 2008 or so until mm -hmm. now, we've seen two dozen, two dozen wind projects go into this region. Um, I, I can't pull the, the statistic on the number of wind turbines, but we're talking about huge, massive wind turbines that require around 200 tons of concrete per wind turbine. And so now there are 2,200 megawatts, which is extraordinary, of power that is installed in this region. And Oaxaca has the highest concentration of onshore wind in the, in the world. And so all of this is happening without any consultation of indigenous peoples, which is an international principle. And it's also embedded in Mexico's law. Most definitely. People have, people have died because they were protesting this. Uh, and again, very few benefits, if any, were going to the local population. And they were living and continue to live in energy poverty. So they're living in the shadows of this generation without any access to the power that is being generated. I mean, they're still kind of, you know, living with lamps, living with, you know, um, just in a very basic way in terms of energy access. And so these people said, there's this development happening all around us. Why are we not benefiting? And also, it's destroying our landscape. If you go to this place, you'll just see the landscape completely dotted with, with wind turbines um, that have really disrupted the local, um, the local landscape. And the folks there say, look, we're not opposed to development, but we're opposed to development like this. The way that they're doing it is is again, the same model that we see with fossil fuel, it's destroying the landscape. And so we've got to do, we, we know we have to do this clean energy transition that's going to save black and brown people. We know that, but we need to make sure that they're involved in this process, that they can tell you sort of where to cite these projects um, and, and they can get economic benefits. They can get lifted out of poverty. That's how we do this transition mm. in a way that's just. 
It's not business as usual. This is a new moment. This is a new day. Clean energy allows people to participate in projects on a new level. And so that's, that's been my work over the past No, decade. no, th- th- that's important. But how do we get that then to be, because I, I almost want to give you another title. <laughs> I almost want to, I, I think DOE needs to then add to you and others, a lot of you and your colleagues are going to also need to be um, trust ambassadors, right? Mm. Because okay. how, how, how are you going at this time, particularly for a lot of our communities, needing to make this a kitchen table conversation because it's so important? But also, how are you going to ensure that for many of our communities, this is black, brown, mm-hmm. um, and that, and even poor white communities who have been Absolutely. so misaligned by energy companies. Um, they've either blown up our mountains, they've either put coal ash uh, in mercury in our water, they 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 put in either their their clean energy. And, and without having us in, involved in it, so there's no community solar, they, they, they've done all these things to us. Um, you now show up here, right, and part of energy, and you're now saying it's it's a new day, and we can key the Wiz song right there. Every, every time you guys go out, we can make sure we have the Wiz song that keys that right when y'all <laughs> go into anybody's community. But then how do you build trust? Because I think it's also a very political environment, Folks saying that this yeah. is a socialist process or they're saying this is wrong. Yeah. So every side is pointing to the other and all we want is clean energy that, that, that doesn't kill us. And that's your job. Right. All you want to do is make sure, listen, I want to make sure y'all turn the lights on and it don't kill you either uh, financially or physically. That's, that's what you want for us. I want people to live, but how do you get us to that point after all, that's, after all that we've been through with energy in this mm. country? Oh my gosh. So, you know, energy justice has a component of it that is restorative and restorative justice. And restorative justice is really about the healing. And um, I, I do believe that energy policy can be a site of healing. And that sounds bizarre. Um, but we do that through deep relationships with each other and in community and in co designing. Um, this new system. And so I think that requires us to be in conversation with frontline communities. And so, um, again, I, I brought that into this role and I said, you know, this is, these are my commitments. I'm committed to the folks who are on the front lines and, um, and I'm going to be in conversation with them. And, and that is exactly what is required. And, and when, when I think about stakeholder engagement, I'm not talking about one meeting, thank you so much. Thank you for your ideas. Now we're going to go off and do what we want to do. I'm thinking about constant conversations, mm. engagement, deep, deep participation. And that's how we heal. That's how we heal each other. And that's how we heal this planet and heal through the energy system. And so, you know, I, I know I'm not naive about the complexity of, of government. I mean, bureaucracy is, is deep and I'm, I'm not one for it. Like, I mean, many people who know me are like, oh, okay, you know what I mean? But I like to move fast. I like to, you know, get things done. And um, I'm learning a new system. And I have a lot of help um, with people who've been at DOE for, for decades who are helping me na- navigate. Um, but I also want folks to know that, that I'm working on behalf of 
those who are currently suffering. And so I do need a little bit of grace, right? I need a little bit of time to do some of this, but, but the way I move is to be in conversation. And so, so that's how we build the trust, you know, being in conversation and we're actually required to do that. I mean, of course it's my natural inclination, but um, the president has signed executive orders that are requiring a deeper stakeholder engagement. And so um, I'm excited to be in that conversation. Let's talk about that, actually, because President Biden's executive orders create a government-wide Justice 40 initiative with the goal of delivering 40% of the overall benefits of relevant federal climate investments to disadvantaged communities and tracks performance toward that goal through the establishment of an environmental justice scorecard. So Mm. off the bat, is 40% uh, the right amount in this equation? Wow, that's a hard question. <laughs> it's, a, it's a cool show, Shalanda. <laughs> we keep it 100 here. I, don't, I see, I see. Well, so um, 40% is a good start. And, you know, I think there are many of us who are ambitious and, and want to see parity across so many different areas, right? We want to see the gap between um, communities of color and white communities on solar closed. I'm, I'm interested in that. I want to see the energy burden get reduced. I'm interested in that. I don't know what that's going to take in terms of overall benefits to get to that. But that's justice, right? Where we have equity. And, and you know, I know that there's been a lot of debate and a lot of fear around equity versus equality. But, you know, um, we need equity to get to equality. Mm. Once we get, once we get uh, you know, once we have equity, we'll have an equal playing field. But right now, you know, we have people who didn't start off in the same way and who've actually been um, deliberately stopped from, from, uh, from excelling. We've had wealth um, extracted from communities and that wealth has been extracted by the energy industry. So while there's been drilling and, and all of that type of industry in communities, they've been shortening lives, as you talked about before, right? So, so that's, that's how, you know, we've been set back and not been able to start off on the same uh, playing field. And so... I don't know if 40% is the right number. I know it's extraordinary in terms of um, government. We've never seen that type of commitment. I think General Sherman's, um, you know, proclamation uh, on, on the battlefield, the 40 acres and a mule. I mean, that, that, mm. that sounds, um, that resonates, right, in terms of the, the similar commitment. And so I know that I am, so my portfolio is to move the Justice 40 initiative at DOE. That's on my back. I'm on that. And so, you know, I have a a $40 billion budget at the Department of Energy um, that needs to be examined and evaluated to know exactly where, how we're doing in terms of our commitments to um, underserved communities and disadvantaged communities. And so I'm committed to understanding where our resources are going because we do have that 40% of overall benefits goal. And I don't know where we are at this stage. And so um, I'm committed to that. Cecilia Martinez, Dr. Martinez, is, is on it um, at, at the Council on Environmental Equality. She's running the initiative across the entire federal government, and we're working together. So um, 40%, I don't know if it's the right number, but I know that it, it is extraordinary and it's unprecedented. And we've got some real goals to, to meet on the ground. We want to change the lived experiences of people right now. And so maybe it's 40, maybe it's something else. Um, but the fact is things are going to change and actually I think they're going to transform. And so that, that's, that's what I'm about. I'm trying to no, transform. Lives. No, no, I, I, and I appreciate that. How much time do you need? And what I mean, this is me speaking to my fellow 
climate activists who get a little jittery when we don't get things quickly. We're like little kids sometimes. That's we right. want we, we want to get it. So and you know, in in a good in a good moment, I never forget when we were protesting against the Keystone XL pipeline. Um this was with President Obama. Um, you know, I love President Obama. But we out there protesting, and we got arrested. That's what I always say. I always, he will always say, "I, I have the honor." I always, I got arrested. The Republican or Democrat president it doesn't really matter. We, we, we were out there. But the honor to that was later on that because we put pressure. Later on, he he called me in and gave me the award for uh, yeah. uh, champion of change. And then this past year, uh, now President Biden canceled the Keystone. So you know. Pressure works, but I want to make sure that it's, I want to make sure as our, our movement is hearing you, how much time when we don't see this, even this 40, gets, if we feel like it's getting whittled down to 30 or 20, or even we saw recently with the $15 for just the, the living wage, not even the living wage, just $15 um, this far as raising the hourly wage. Um, when that when those things get removed, it gets us anxious in the in the movement. So, how much time do you and DOE need to? And we know that y'all came in a situation where y'all didn't have the key to the doors. In some cases, y'all yeah. came into a rough spot. So, how much time do are you looking for? Is it like by June? Is it by twenty twenty one? Should we look for legislation? What is it that we should look for in regards to this Justice Forty process? Yeah, so there are some real, um, well, so first of all, thank you for your advocacy. Thank you for your work. Thank you for putting yourself out on the front lines um, to move justice. Um, and so we have some real milestones in Executive Order 14008, um, which are really about holding our feet to the fire. And you mentioned the energy, the environmental justice scorecard that has to be out by February 2022. And at that stage, um, we'll know a little bit more. I mean, I think we'll know a lot more about where we are. Um, we have some milestones um, in six months to really develop a framework uh, around disadvantaged communities and, and show what is meant by who will be getting the benefits, um, the, the 40% of the benefits of these investments. Um, my, as, as our new secretary of um, energy says, my hair is on fire. Like I, I'm here running. I am running. I'm working every day, every night, every early morning, you know, really trying to move this stuff as quickly as possible. And so I think you can expect forward looking metrics where people can see where we are and, and track. Um, I, I'm not on the outside anymore. So I'm very much on the inside what I need from people who are who are on the front lines is to push and to continue to hold us accountable and say, we need it faster, we need it faster, we need it faster. And so um, I know that this year is going to be a sprint um, in terms of trying to get things done. You know, we have a, a another branch of government, the legislative branch that is on board with, with many of the goals that are embedded in, in the president's um, agenda. And so that will be helpful. But we also know that every two years we have Congress shifting. And so, um, so I think, you know, all of us know that we have to take advantage of this aligned government uh, and move quickly. So um, I think a year is a, is a good amount of time to, to really assess and say, where are we? And, and I know that that's where I'm holding myself accountable um, to making sure that 
we're moving, we're delivering on the promise of Justice 40. So it's historic. I mean, I don't think I really can, can let myself feel just how historic it is because if I did, it would be overwhelming. I mean, this is the first time in history that we've had anything mm. like this since Reconstruction. I mean, ah, like you can't even, mm. to me, it's just, it does inspire chills. It's like, wow, okay, I'm holding that and I'm up for it. I'm so up for it because my ancestors fought for this. My ancestors fought for this moment. They fought for me to be able to be here. They lived. I mean, can you imagine going in every day, you know, having to suffer at the hands of, you know, slave owners and thinking that there might be a future out there, that there might be somebody who comes after you who can do better. And so I'm, I'm standing in that. I'm standing in that mm. promise. And so to think about being alone in this, I'm not alone. I'm standing on their shoulders. And also I'm standing on your shoulders. I'm standing on the shoulders of so many people who have fought to make sure that there is a position like mine in this administration. I didn't do this. Yes, I've done great things. I know that. But I didn't get myself here. The movement got me here. The movement mm. created this possibility. So I'm here on their shoulders and I'm working on behalf of so, so many people who, who came before me. And so, um, so I'm running. I'm no, running every day. I, I love it. Sloan, I just have two more questions. Uh, and I thank you for your time. You, you know. Oh, my gosh. So fun. No. <laughs> <laughs> this actually kind of piggybacks on what you just said. Um, talking about literally our, our ancestors. And mm-hmm. literally how they, particularly in the 19th, 18th, 17th, um, and the 20th century, they were fighting for equality. But now in the 21st century, we're not only fighting for equality, but we're fighting for existence. Mm-hmm. Like literally what we have now is a time clock added to our our work and our, and what we have to do. So the question is that as we think about civil rights movement and what we've been through uh, in the 20th century, young people went to the lunch counter um, to be served just to be human in some cases Um, is energy justice, our lunch counter moment for the 21st century. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. And what it means is that, We've got to get smart on every aspect of energy policy and the energy system and energy finance as we can, because this is where the rules are created. Those invisible um, rules in some ways are created that shape our lives. We know now, I mean, look at Texas, look at California, look at Puerto Rico. We know now that the energy system has an intimate relationship to our being our day to day. We know that this climate emergency is going to make access to clean, resilient energy um, a priority. And so to do that, that's life. That's life and death. Mm. That's that's the story about getting your, your electricity cut off and dying, right? Like those are the things that's that's the life that you're you're talking about that we're fighting for. But to make sure that that happens, We've got to understand how the system has been created and we have to understand how the new system is being created because yes, I'm doing things at the federal level, but a lot of the energy system is created at the local and state levels. So people have to get in there. They have to get involved. 
They have to organize and learn and educate each other. And it's an ongoing process. But the system, the regulatory system has been in some ways designed to exclude people. So we've got, you know, the, the power players in there and literally the utilities um, who are, are running the show and driving the conversation. And they're, they're not sharing data. They don't have to share data. And they're, they're coming in with pre-baked ideas about how the energy system should go. And um, communities should have a say in that. But we've got to get up to speed. And that, that takes work. And it takes organizing. And it takes resources from you know, the philanthropic community to build that capacity so people can engage. Um, but yes, this is, a, this is a fight for our lives. This is, and, and it is going to play out uh, along the, the within the domain of energy policy. Westlawn, this is my last question. Fuck that last <laughs> question. I have, I have, a, I have like a a, 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 a a another question to the question. So it really isn't my last question. So I guess my, my next to last okay. question. But this one actually kind of a fun one. I just want to know when you ready to go into one of those those meetings uh, uh, and you gotta get pumped up. Uh, what do you turn on? Like, like, what music do you put on? Like, 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 what, what's your Rocky song to get you ready? Get you when you when you got going like you got get ready, go ready, get ready, going in and go to battle. What song are you putting on first to get you fired up? Oh my gosh, it's so funny because this morning I was getting ready and I was like, what, what am I? What am I going to get hyped with today? <laughs> um, so I love uh, Kendrick Lamar DNA. Of okay, course, now you know. <laughs> That's a great one. And then, of course, you know, Drake started at the bottom. <laughs> I love it. I, I love, love it. it. Um, but my uh, a third song, and I know I'm, I'm giving you many songs, but the third song, and I would say this is the last, is um, Nicki Minaj, you know, for life. Because yeah. I have lived a, a dream. And and it's just like, I'm, I'm living my best life every day, oh. even though my best life is is exhausting. Um, <laughs> but it is exciting. and I And I love that one. That's like my... I'm doing okay song. So, I yeah. love it. That's the Shalanda Baker playlist. <laughs> I love <laughs> right. it. Oh, man. Well, this is my last question. Thank you so much. And I hope you had fun mm. here on the coolest show. Um, it's kind of a two-parter, but it's really, you can decide you want to answer it. The first, so okay. it's really, how do energy democracy and economic justice intersect? And how can energy scholars help communities build capacity with local utility regulators. Oh, I love it. So energy democracy is really about participating in the design of the energy system and also participating in the generation of of energy and electricity. And so um, we think about energy democracy, we think about people having a seat at the table, um, co-creating with regulators, with other stakeholders, the energy system. So that's that's a, a true sense of democracy. But the economic part of that is, you know, my neighbors getting together and saying, let's let's create a community solar project or let's figure out a way to lower our electricity bills together. And and you know, right now the vehicle for that in policy is community solar. Um, but there's also rooftop solar. And there are also mm-hmm. things like microgrids that are coming out where say a church you know, wants to be a hub for electricity in a community. They put on rooftop solar, they get some batteries, and um, and they are able to keep that community afloat by connecting meters, connecting, um, you know, homes to, to that church um, in the event of a major weather disaster. But that requires, um, you know, regulators to agree. It requires the utility to agree that that community might be islanded, as they say, from, from the rest of the grid. 
in the event of a, a disaster. We have the technology to do that today. And so we just need regulation to follow and we need utilities to get on board and realize that this is going to save lives as well as, um, you know, create, put money in the pockets of, of people who need it the most. So that's energy democracy. It's both having a seat at the table as well as economic participation in the system. Now, Denise Fairchild, who's a mentor and a friend, and Al Weinrub wrote a book called Energy Democracy, and they take the perspective that it's even more than that, and then it's about racial justice, social justice, and energy democracy is making sure that those who are marginalized in the system are, are the people who are participating in those types of things, and um, I recommend their book highly. Um, and how can philanthropic community, or I'm sorry, not, not philanthropic, how can academics uh, contribute to this? Look, it's a privilege to be an academic. And you can choose to sit in the ivory tower and have your work not matter. And if you do that, shame on you. Mm. I, I will say that to my colleagues, shame on you. We are in an emergency in so many ways. We're in, emerg in an emergency with respect to racial violence against black and brown people in this country. We're in an emergency in terms of climate. We're in an emergency in terms of COVID. Your work has to matter. You know, when you look back on this time and think about what you did, you've got to make sure that your work matters to people who are struggling every day. And so I think we need to be doing research, asking questions about the impact of the energy system. We have to be designing new models and approaches to regulation. So I'm talking to my, law, my legal scholar colleagues right now. You know, we need to really be creating solutions that matter. And that hasn't been this tradition in academia. It's very much been us talking to each other about, you know, problems. But we've got to make sure that those solutions really flow to policymakers and to communities on the ground. And so that would be my call uh, for those climate folks out there. I love climate it. Scholars. I love it. Thank you so much. And I just want to be talking about book recommendations. I want to, for folks just, who just want to pick it up, I, I actually picked it up. It was uh, Shalanda Baker's book called Revolutionary Power, an Activist Guide to the Energy Transition. It was fantastic. So I just want to recommend those who are listening, if you want to pick that up. Shalanda, is there anything else you want to add as we close here? Make sure, or uh, how can folks get in contact with you over now at, at DOB? How, how does that how does that work? And or any any last comments you want to you want to bring up here? Yeah. So um, let's see. Hit, hit me up on LinkedIn. I am on LinkedIn for the first time ever. That that's a, an easy way to reach me. Um, my email address at DOE is shalanda.baker at hq.doe.gov. I do get a lot of emails um, and I try to be responsive. So I ask for your patience there. And I think, you know, I want to leave folks with the idea that we all get tired sometimes. We all get tired, but we're all in this together. And so I am in this with you. I get tired. And when I fall back, someone else comes in to fill my place. And then when I'm ready, I come in to fill their place. And so um, let's all work together even though we get tired, we need each other's support to get through this. And so, yes, I'm in the federal government, but this government is yours. This government is yours. So make it work. Hold me accountable. Push me to do things that are in service of the people who are paying my salary. Mm, amazing. And that is our guest today. She is Shalanda Baker, Deputy Director for Energy Justice for the Office of Economic Impact and Diversity at the Department of Energy. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Thank you, Shalanda. 
Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think100Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all